All right, we'll take your Bibles and turn to Nahum. Nahum. Another small little prophet, just three chapters that could easily be skipped over uh, in that portion of your Bible where the pages stick together, right? But um, as you're turning there, I'm sure that you're aware that there are many unbelievers and even some believers uh, who have a misconception that God is portrayed differently in the Old Testament than He's portrayed in the New Testament. Have you ever heard of that or thought that yourselves? Um, Some would say it like this, the God of the Old Testament is a God of wrath, while the God of the New Testament is a God of love. And, And people sometimes have a hard time reconciling in their minds how the Old Testament reveals a God who ordered the destruction of countless people, and, and then the New Testament reveals a God in the form of Jesus Christ who forgives sinners and, and commands people to turn the other cheek. And so you've got the eye for an eye of the Old Testament, you've got the turn the other cheek of, of the New Testament, and so it does seem like there's uh, some disparity there. Uh, And yet the more you study the Bible, it becomes clear that the God of the Old Testament is the same God of the New Testament, and that His wrath and His love are equally revealed in both Testaments. I've always appreciated Josh McDowell, um, a very well-known evangelist and apologist, um, wrote a book called Answers to Tough Questions that Skeptics Ask About the Christian Faith. And he addresses this, this question is, why does the God of the Old Testament sound different, feel different, seem different uh, than the God of the New Testament? And this is what he said. He said, the Old Testament contains stories of God's commanding the destruction of Sodom, the annihilation of the Canaanites, and many other stories of God's judgment and wrath. The accusers claim this demonstrates a primitive warlike deity in contradistinction to the advanced teachings of Jesus to love one another. These ideas about God seem to be in direct conflict, but a moment's reflection will show otherwise. Jesus himself declared that the Old Testament may be summed up by the commandments to love God and love your neighbor, Matthew 22. He also observed that God in the Old Testament had continually desired love and mercy rather than sacrifice. This attitude can be seen with statements such as, Have have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live? Ezekiel 18. God would not have destroyed certain nations except that he is a God of justice, and their evil could not go unchecked and and, and condoned. He did did intend and desire to punish them as part of his plan in consistency with his holy nature and jealousy for his wayfaring people, the nation of Israel. What he desires in consistency with his pure character, he does in justice in their case, providing they have not repented and come into harmony with his nature. In the case of the Amorites, God gave them hundreds of years to repent, yet they did not. Noah preached 120 years to his generation before the great flood. The proper Old Testament picture is one of a very patient God who gives these people untold opportunities to repent and come into harmony with Him, and only when they continually refuse does He judge and punish them for their evil deeds. Contrary to some popular belief, the strongest statements of judgment and wrath in the Bible were made by the Lord Jesus Himself. 
In Matthew 23, for example, he lashed out at the religious leaders of his day, calling them hypocrites and false leaders and informing them that their destiny was eternal banishment from God's presence. We find judgment as well as love scattered very pervasively throughout the New Testament and love and mercy as well as judgment throughout the Old Testament. God is consistent and unchanging, but different situations call for different emphases. Therefore, when the two Testaments are read the way they're intended, they reveal the same holy God who is rich in mercy, but who will not let sin go unpunished. I think that is a very helpful answer to that question. And and again, God has, has very clearly, very consistently revealed himself to us in both the Old and New Testaments. In fact, I think the initial and foundational way that God revealed himself in the Old Testament was to Moses in Mount Sinai. Turn back to Exodus 34 real quick. Exodus 34, you're familiar with this passage. Um, this is probably one of the most repeated uh, passages uh, in the Old Testament, which tells us uh, this was something that God wanted us to key in on and, and understand and, 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 uh, and absorb. But uh, this was after uh, Moses was on Mount Sinai and he asked the Lord to show him his glory. And uh, God said, I can't do that. You'll burn the eye sockets out of your head, right? And so I'm going to put you in a rock uh, in a cleft in the rock, and then um, you're going to come and see my backside, right? Because if I show you my glory, the full extent of my glory, you would be incinerated. And so he does that. And, and so it's interesting, as he um, passed, it says, the Lord passed by in front of him. And instead of s- describing what he saw about the Lord's glory, Moses records what he heard. Interesting. So when the Lord revealed his glory to Moses, it wasn't a visual display of glory so much as that was an audio, uh, an audio display of his glory. And notice what he says in Exodus chapter 34, verse 6, Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. I would submit to you that this is the classic description of God in the Old Testament. And it's repeated by various people in various situations throughout the Old Testament. And in our study of the minor prophets, we've already seen God described in this exact way by a prophet, the prophet Jonah, uh, who quoted uh, that passage, quoted Exodus chapter 34 in Jonah chapter 4 verse 2. Just turn back a couple uh, pages there uh, to, to Jonah. Just go back to Micah. We looked at Micah last time and then Jonah. Jonah chapter 4 verse 2, you remember he said this, um, Jonah prayed to the Lord and said, Please, Lord, was not this what I said while I was still in my country? Therefore, I, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish. And, and so basically he's admitting why he refused to originally, originally refused to go to, to Nineveh, right? Um, because he knew that you are a, what? Gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and one who relents Concerning calamity. 
And so here was Jonah speaking about God's compassion and God's mercy that he expected him to have on the city of Nineveh. And when he had compassion and, and they repented and he uh, did, did, chose not to, he basically postponed their judgment, uh, it said he got angry. <laughs> kind of crazy there. But tonight, we're going to see God described again in the same exact way by another prophet, the prophet Nahum, uh, and it's also in regards to the city of Nineveh. Uh, look at chapter 1 of Nahum, verse 3. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. That sound familiar? Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. And uh, I think it's interesting that of all the, uh, of the 12 minor prophets, two out of the 12 are, are, are devoted to pronouncing judgment on the city of Nineveh. You say, what's up with Nineveh? Why have two out of the 12 minor prophets, right? I thought the prophets were all about, you know, confronting, God confronting Judah or God confronting uh, Israel, the, the 10 northern tribes of Israel, the two southern tribes of Judah. I thought that's what the prophets were for. Well, here's uh, two prophets, Jonah and Nahum, who were called by God to pronounce judgment on the city of Nineveh. Now, you'll remember if you were here for the uh, message on Jonah that Nineveh was the capital city of the of the Assyrian Empire, which was the leading world power uh, during the days in which many of the Old Testament prophets uh, of Israel ministered. It was the largest city in the known world at the time, with an estimated population ranging from six hundred thousand to maybe a million inhabitants. I think it was massive. And uh, it was situated on the eastern bank of the Tigris River, which is about 150 miles northwest of, of modern-day Baghdad. And this, this fortified city was considered impregnable. Um, you may remember me describing it. That it had walls around it. The, the walls around the city were 100 feet high. And they were so thick that three horse-drawn uh, chariots could ride side by side. They could race around the top of the walls. Uh, and along the walls, there were some 200 towers that went another 100 feet above the top of the wall. So you've got these 200-foot towers, uh, lookout towers, and towers to, 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 to fight from. Uh, and, and, and if that wasn't enough, the walls in these towers were surrounded by a moat that was 150 feet wide. That's a big moat. And 60 foot deep. I mean, so you can imagine this, this city, just it was invincible. At least they thought that way, right? Um, the city could supposedly withstand a, a, a siege for 20 years. Can you imagine that? Uh, they, they could have a, an enemy outside the walls and they could live. They could survive for 20 years. Um, that was the city of Nineveh. And, and as you can imagine, a, a pagan city of this size and of this strength w was marked by a level of arrogance and, and opulence and decadence that, that completely dishonored God. Uh, Assyria was one of the most proud and, and brutal, ruthless empires that the world has ever known. Uh, Nahum described them as a, a ravenous lion prowling around, devouring everyone in its path. Chapter 3, verse 11 Nahum chapter 3, verse 11, you too will become drunk. Um, 
I'm sorry, it's verse, chapter 2, verse 11. Where is the den of the lions and the feeding place of the young lions where the lion, lioness, and lion's cub prowl with nothing to disturb them? The lion tore enough for his cubs, killed enough for his lioness, and filled his layers with prey and his dens with torn flesh. So it's this idea of this lion that's just going out and just killing everything in his path and just bringing it all back into this cave, right? And, and has all this stuff piled up around for, for the lioness and the cubs. And that was a picture of, of Nineveh, that they were prowling around this like a lion, and they were going and just pillaging uh, all sorts of cities and, and, and nations and, and, uh, and, and taking all this stuff back and, and, and basically um, you know, furnishing Nineveh. Um, they were an, an, an unstoppable military machine. They were notorious for their brutal atrocities that they inflicted on their captives. You, you remember probably that I talked about how they would skin their enemies alive. They would chop off their hands, their feet, their noses, their ears. Uh, in every city that they conquered, they would leave a pyramid of human skulls behind, kind of like their business card. Uh, the Assyrians have been here. And again, they, they furnished their capital city of Nineveh by plundering all the other capital cities of the world. Uh, chapter 3, verse 8 are you better than Noamon, which was situated by the waters of the Nile, with water surrounding her, whose rampart was the sea, whose wall consisted of the sea? That's a reference to uh, the capital city of Egypt. Uh, Thebes is, would be the other name for it. Um, we'll go back to that in just a moment. But in Nahum's day, um, the Assyrians had already besieged and plundered Samaria, not just the capital of Egypt, but the Samaria, the capital of the northern, or, or the northern kingdom. Um, just as the prophets of the northern kingdom had predicted, Isaiah, Hosea, uh, Amos had all predicted that, that God would use the Assyrians as a tool to punish the sin of, of, of Israel, the, the ten northern tribes. And now, now the Assyrians had their sights set on Jerusalem, the capital city of the southern kingdom, uh, the capital of Judah. And, and if you, we don't have time to do this, but you can maybe just write this down. Second Chronicles 32 and 33, you have some of the background, the historical background of what's going on. But that's where you read the story of Sennacherib, the, the king of Assyria, had, had, how he had invaded all the other fortified cities of, of, of Judah and had laid siege to Jerusalem and was threatening King Hezekiah. And, and basically saying, you know, are you kidding me? You're telling your people that your God is going to save you? I mean, what other God has saved their people from the Assyrians, the mighty Assyrians? And if you remember, Hezekiah took this, um, this letter, this blasphemous letter, and along with Isaiah, and they went into the temple, and what did they do? They prayed and asked God to intervene, and, and God performed a miracle. Uh, he sent an angel, a, a death angel, who destroyed uh, the entire Assyrian army during the night. And Zanacharib woke up and all of his soldiers were dead. And he had to go home uh, ashamed um, by that uh, situation. And when he got there, when he got home, uh, he was killed by his own kids. I mean, that's what God thought of that guy. Um, and then after Hezekiah's death... His son Manasseh became king, and unfortunately, he led the people of Judah astray. And it says in, in 2 Chronicles 33 that, 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 that the, the nation of Judah was even more evil than the pagan nations around him. That's evil, right? And so uh, 
consequently, God brought the Assyrian army back to Judah and they captured Manasseh and they led him off to Babylon. It says that they stuck a ring in his nose and uh, they put him in shackles and they drug him off like an animal um, to Babylon at the time which was under Assyrian control. All that to say that the Assyrians posed a, a serious threat to the nation of Judah. And, uh, and that's why Jonah had such a hard time going to Nineveh. Um, he, he knew, as I already read, he knew that God would have compassion on, on their arch enemies and give them an opportunity to escape his judgment if they repented. And, uh, and as we learned from the book of Jonah, Nineveh did repent. Um, back in 760 B.C., they repented but based on the book of Nahum, which we're going to study tonight, which we're studying tonight, their repentance was short-lived. Uh, apparently, after the great revival uh, that the Ninevites experienced, the, the following generation, their kids and grandkids reverted back to their arrogant, violent, immoral ways. And so God could no longer postpone his judgment against this wicked city and, and this entire wicked nation. So, so uh, some, some 150 years later, after Jonah had prophesied in Nineveh, God raised up the prophet Nahum to proclaim the judgment, to proclaim his judgment on them um, that Jonah had hoped for in his day. Remember, Jonah, after he, 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 he said, listen, you guys need to repent or, or, or you're going to be punished. You got 40 days to repent or, or the fire of God is going to come down and judge you. And he went outside the city, right, and, and sat out there hoping to watch the destruction of Nineveh, which never happened. Well, guess what? Nahum proclaimed the judgment on Nineveh that Jonah had, Jonah had hoped for. And this is about 660 B.C., so about 100 years later, Nahum is, is prophesying. And again, we looked at this in, in, in the book of Jonah, that God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. That's what it says in Ezekiel 33.11. He's patient, not wishing any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. And so he was being gracious, he was being merciful, he was being compassionate, he was being patient with the city of Nineveh. I mean, he could have walked, he, he, I mean, he could have, he could have uh, made Jonah real happy and just said, let's go torch him right now, Jonah, tell him I'm coming. And give them no opportunity to repent. But God is always, right, providing us an opportunity to repent. But there comes a day when the patience of God ends and he expresses his hatred for sin by punishing it. That's what we know, or that's what we call the wrath of God. God's wrath, simply defined, is God's judgment against sin. So when we talk about God's wrath, what are we talking about that? We're talking about God's judgment against sin. It's what God thinks of sin and what he must do about sin. What does God think about sin? How does he feel about sin? He hates it, right? He hates it, and so therefore he must punish it, punish it right? That's being consistent as a holy God. He must punish it. And so, let's just be honest here, okay? God's, God's wrath is without question the most sobering, terrifying attribute of God. And it's no wonder why it is often avoided, it's downplayed, and sometimes it's even denied uh, by believers. Uh, 
we, we all like to talk about and, and play up the nice attributes of God, like His love, right? Let's talk about God's love. Let's talk about God's grace, God's mercy, His faithfulness, His goodness. But for some reason, man, we have a, we have a problem with God's wrath. I'm sure you didn't walk in or when, as soon as this thing popped up tonight, you're like, oh, goody, we're going to talk about God's wrath. I'm so excited. You're like, oh, great. We're talking about God's awful wrath. This is going to be a fun message, Right? Believe it or not, there are more references in the Bible to God's anger and fury than there are to his love and tenderness. Did you know that? J.I. Packer said this in his book, Knowing God, a great book. If you've not read that, I would encourage you to do that. Kind of a a classic book that kind of put him on the map uh, as a a great writer and theologian. Uh, He says this, clearly the theme of God's wrath is one about which the biblical writers feel no inhibitions whatsoever. In other words, they're talking about it all the time. Why then should we? What is it that makes us awkward and embarrassed when the subject comes up that prompts us to soft-pedal it and hedge when we're asked about it? What lies at the bottom of our hesitations and difficulties? He says, this is what he says, he said, the root cause of our unhappiness seems to be the disquieting suspicion that the idea of God's wrath is in one way or another unworthy of God. In other words, I think our problem is that we tend to equate God's wrath with our wrath. But God's wrath is, is not anything like our wrath. God's, God's not irritable. He doesn't have a bad temper or a short fuse. He doesn't blow up when he doesn't get his way. He doesn't fly off the handle at the slightest infraction. He's not a, a ticking time bomb waiting to, to go off at any, any minute. His, his anger's not out of control. I just described my anger, your anger, right? Human sinful anger. And we just have to realize that God's anger is, is nothing like that. God's anger is holy, it's pure, and it's sinless. It's, it's what we call righteous indignation, right? And so we need to be careful not to think that God is like us when it comes to his wrath. So what, what, what do we mean by the wrath of God? Well, in the New Testament, the, 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 the word that's most often used uh, to describe the wrath of God or the word for wrath is called orge, orge. And it's a, a word that was used to describe fruit swelling, with juice until it burst, a, a, a bud of a flower that would swell and crack and gradually burst into bloom. That was the word orgate. And, and basically it was a word used to describe God's anger against sin that, 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 that gradually builds in intensity until one day it just bursts forth upon sinners. And of course the classic um, passage in the New Testament on God's wrath would be what? Anybody remember? How about Romans chapter 1? Listen to how this, this concept of orge, um, this, this gradual building up of intensity into, in, until it bursts forth upon sinners. He says this in Romans chapter 1, verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. In other words... God is mad, okay, not in a sinful way, but God is mad that even though he's revealed himself clearly to every one of us, um, 
that we suppress that truth, right, in our unrighteousness. And we say, you know what, I don't want to admit that there's a God because then that means I have to give up my sin. And so we suppress that truth. We hold it down. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. In other words, not only has God made it clear within us by, by means of our conscience, right, that we all know, right, the difference between right and wrong, that's evidence that, that we know there's a God, right, a, a ruler, a lawgiver, uh, a judge, uh, but he's also revealed himself through what we can see all around us, through creation, and so we're all without excuse. Nobody could get to heaven and say, well, I, I didn't know you existed, God. How was I supposed to know? He's like, seriously? I, I gave you the creation and I gave you your conscience. Not to mention I gave you the word of God. I, I gave you myself and the person of Jesus Christ. I surrounded you with people on this planet who've been converted. Their lives have been radically changed through a relationship to me. All those are evidences that I exist. He says, for even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give him thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. In other words, we replace God with idols. Crazy. Be like me showing up with a mannequin, you know, and saying, hey, just want you to introduce you to my dad. I got this mannequin up there, and my dad's sitting right over there, my real dad, right? And, and you're going, are you okay? What, what's, your, what's your problem? You're suppressing the truth, right? Of, and you, you're, you're saying that your, your dad's a mannequin? Seriously? And, and that's what he's saying. They're, that makes no sense, right? Their foolish hearts were darkened. Therefore, verse 21, God gave them over. There's the retribution, Right? God says, hey, you don't care about my glory? That's fine. I'm just going to give you over to your sin. I'm just going to give you over. And three times he says, I'm going to give you over. I'm going to give you over. I'm going to give you over to immorality, step one, to homosexuality, step two, and then step three is insanity, where, where what you think and say and believe makes absolutely no sense at all. Good is called evil, and evil is called good. Isn't that our society today? And so that's, that's an evidence of God's wrath, right? That's how the New Testament describes that. God's anger against our sin. He says, fine, have at it. And he gives us over to our sin. Now, what Romans 1 is to the New Testament, Nahum 1 is to the Old Testament. And what I mean by that is I think this is the clearest passage in the Old Testament uh, that describes the wrath of God, or at least it's the most, it's the passage that has the most concentrated um, teaching on the wrath of God anywhere in, in the Old Testament. Um, and, and basically what we're going to see here is that the nation of Assyria had worn out God's patience. And through Nahum, God announced their impending destruction by the hands of the Babylonians. Um, now, interesting, Nahum means, anybody know? The name Nahum? No, nobody named your kid that, apparently, right? It means comfort or consolation. You're like, what's up with that? How, how, why, would, why would God choose a, a man by the name of comfort or consolation to bring this, this, this message of judgment to Nineveh? Well, who is this prophecy 
supposed to be a, or intended to be a comfort or consolation to? Judah. The destruction of Nineveh was a message of hope and, and, and consolation to Judah because they lived in fear of the Assyrians. They were, they were sitting there shaking in their boots, if you will, in Jerusalem, ready for them to come back and do something else. They'd already come twice already, right? And so they were living in fear. And so this was, this was, this was good news for the, for the Judeans uh, to destroy their enemies, the, the Assyrians. At the same time, God's word through Nahum should have struck fear in the hearts of the Assyrians. But the nation had reached its zenith, the zenith of its power, its prosperity uh, during Nahum's day. And so uh, I would imagine this prophecy must have seemed absurd to them. Are you kidding me? We're going to be overthrown? What are you talking about? Have you seen our walls? Have you seen our towers? Have you seen our moat? Right? We can, we can hold out for 20 years. Seriously? And so I think from the Ninevites' perspective, they probably heard this, and at that point their hearts were so hardened, right? They listened to Jonah the first time, but now they're like, yeah, whatever. Go back to Judah and, you know, do what you do in Judah, but don't tell us about this. But ah, let's, let's talk about these, just the way this, this um, prophecy unfolds. There's three chapters Basically, three sections here. Breaks down nicely. Um, chapter 1, you could call destruction decreed. Chapter 2, you could call dis- destruction described. And, and ch- chapter 3 could be destruction deserved. In other words, chapter 1, uh, Nahum talks about what God will, will do. Chapter 2, he talks about how he'll do it. And then chapter 3, he talks about why he'll do it. Okay? So, that's a very simple outline. Let's just read through this. And, and, and I'm not going to make too many comments because, again, it's very self-explanatory. Uh, but hopefully we can wrap it up here with some good application for us at the end. Uh, let's begin in verse 1. The oracle of Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum the Elkishite. Uh, in other words, he was from a place called Elkush, which we don't really know where that is. Um, there's not enough evidence to know for sure where he was from. It could have been in the region of Galilee. Capernaum, the city of Capernaum there on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, means Nahum's village. So some would say, well, he was probably from, uh, from that area. Um, I think it maybe makes more sense that he was from the southern kingdom because he was prophesying, right, to be a comfort and consolation to Judah. So uh, he was maybe from a city in the southern part of Judah between Jerusalem and Gaza. Again, we don't know for sure where that is. But listen to what he says here. This is, this is the opening, <laughs> the introduction to his sermon, if you will. Talk about getting people's attention. A jealous and avenging God is the Lord. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and he reserves wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power and the Lord will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. In whirlwind and storm is his way and clouds are the dust beneath his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The blossoms of Lebanon wither. Mountains quake because of him and the hills dissolve. Indeed, the earth is upheaved by his presence. The world and all the inhabitants in it. Who can stand before his indignation? 
Who can endure the burning of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire and the rocks are broken up by him. Wow. And here's Nahum using um, almost every Hebrew word related to God's wrath or judgment uh, in these opening verses uh, of this oracle to Nineveh. And, and again, Judah seemed very alone, very vulnerable, uh, but God was with Judah and wanted them to know that he regarded her enemy as his enemy. In other words, Assyria was messing with God's people, and that's why he uses the word jealous, right? And again, that's another term. You're like, whoa, God is jealous? Man, I, uh, that doesn't sound holy. That doesn't sound God-like, you know, because I know what I'm like when I'm jealous, and it's typically sinful, right? Jealousy is a sinful thing for a human being, but for God it's not. Basically what it means is he's so committed to his covenant relationship with his people, he will do any, he'll, he will fight for that. He will fight for his people. He'll defend his people. And so, again, God's jealousy is, is holy jealousy, and he's going to take vengeance. He's going he's to take revenge on the Assyrians for the way that they've mis, been mistreating um, his, his people, the nation of Judah. Notice the next verse, verse 7. In contrast to what he just got done talking about, the wrath of God, the anger of God, the vengeance of God, the jealousy of God, notice he says in verse 7, the Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knows those who take refuge in him. So again, here are the, here are the two sides of God, right? We have the wrath of God versus uh, two through six, and then we have the goodness of God here in, in verse seven. Again, th- there are two sides of God, not a Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, not a, not a bipolar uh, God, right? Yeah, what we're talking about is that, hey, God's wrath is as much a part of God's character as his love, and his love is just as much of a part of his character as his wrath. Um, it, it's who God is. You can't compartmentalize God and say, you know what, I don't like to think about God as a wrathful God. I just like to think about, you know, my God is a loving God. Well, listen, it's not your God. It's the Bible's God, okay? You, yeah, you, my God, it is your God then. If that's all your God is, that is your God. It's not the God of the Bible, right? Romans eleven twenty two says it this way, behold the kindness and the severity of God. That's like saying, behold, God's sovereignty and man's responsibility, <laughs> like we've been talking about on Sunday. What? How can God be sovereign and man be responsible all at the same time? How can God be kind and severe all at the same time? That's God. He's, he's a mystery. His ways are higher than our ways, but there's this balance, there's this blend that we have to keep uh, in perfect balance, right? When we think about God, is that, you know, behold the kindness of God and behold the severity of God. And you can't, um, you can't emphasize one to the exclusion of the other. But then notice verse 8, but with an overflowing flood... He will make a complete end of its sight and will pursue his enemies into darkness. It's almost like he, he took a little, he, he came up for air in verse 7 
uh, just to remind the, the people of Judah, hey, just so you know, God is good and, and, and he's a stronghold in the day of trouble and he knows those who take refuge in him, right? He wasn't talking to Nineveh, the Ninevites. He was talking to the, the, the people of Judah. But then he goes right back to the Ninevites, but with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of its sight and will pursue his enemies into darkness. Interesting how um, Nahum predicted that Nineveh would come to an end with an overflowing what? Flood. And guess what? That's precisely what happened. The Tigris River overflowed its banks. It was right on the edge of the Tigris River. It overflowed its banks and, and, and it destroyed part of Nineveh's walls, these impregnable walls. And the Babylonians invaded through the breach in the wall and they ended up plundering the city and setting it on fire. Interesting how it came originally. The, 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 uh, what brought them down was this flood. And the precise details of, of the downfall of Nineveh uh, to the Babylons in 612 B.C. are really, uh, they're authenticated by, by archaeological digs and historical accounts. And I think it's interesting that they didn't find Nineveh, the remains of Nineveh, until 1842. That was when they finally discovered it. And you, you can go over there and, and see the remains of Nineveh today. That'd be kind of a cool trip, right? Maybe not right now, but someday. <laughs> Um, and so we see, first of all, the destruction decreed here, uh, and, and let's just continue to see how he, he unfolds it. Verse 9, whatever you devise against the Lord, he will make a complete end of it. Distress will not rise up twice like tangled thorns and like those who are drunken with their drink. They're consumed as stubble completely withered. For you, uh, from, from you has gone forth one who plotted evil against the Lord, a wicked counselor. Thus says the Lord, thou Though they are at full strength, and likewise many, even so they will be cut off and pass away. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no longer. So now I will break his yoke bar from upon you and will tear off your shackles. Again, going back and forth, I think now talking about removing right the shackles of, uh, of Assyria on Judah. The Lord has issued a command concerning you. Your name will no longer be perpetuated. I will cut off idol and image from the house of your gods. I will repair your grave, for you are contemptible. And then verse 15, Behold, on the mountains the feet of him who brings good news, who announces peace. Celebrate your feasts, O Judah. Pay your vows, for never again will the wicked one pass through you. He is cut off completely. So again, the message of comfort, a message of consolation. Hey, Judah, hey, it's time to party, right? <laughs> throw a party, throw a feast, throw a celebration, because you're never going to get run through again by Assyria. Because they would basically, where they were located, right, all the, the, the great world powers would just run back and forth through the land of Israel and take out the Israelites along the way. It was just like a big old pathway. It was like the passageway from Egypt to, to Assyria and back and forth, and, and Israel was always being caught right in the middle of this. He said, it's not going to happen anymore because I'm taking these guys out. They're going to be overthrown. And so chapter 2, he describes how that's going to happen. Verse two, chapter 2, verse 1, The one who scatters has come up against you. Man the fortress, watch the road, strengthen your back, summon all your strength, for the Lord will restore the splendor of Jacob like the splendor of Israel. Even though devastators have devastated them and destroyed their vine branches, the shields of his mighty men are colored red. The, the, the warriors are dressed in scarlet. The chariots are enveloped in flashing steel. When he is prepared to march and the cypress spears are brandished, the chariots, ra ra chariots race madly in the streets. They rush wildly in the squares. Their appearance is like torches. They dash to and fro like lightning flashes. Uh, this is, I think, a description of the Babylonian army 
tearing through Nineveh. He remembers his nobles. They stumble in their march. They hurry to, the wall, to her wall and the mantle that is set up. The gates of the river are open and the place is dissolved. It is fixed. She is stripped. She's carried away. And her handmaids are moaning like the sound of doves beating on their breasts. Though Nineveh was like a pool of water throughout her days, now they are fleeting. Stop, stop, and no one turns back. Plunder the silver, plunder the gold, for there is no light to the limit to the treasure, wealth from every kind of de- desirable object. She is emptied, yes, she is desolate and waste. Hearts are melting and knees knocking. Also anguish is in the whole body, and all their faces are grown pale. Interesting what goes around, what comes around. And so basically the Babylonians are going to do to Nineveh what Nineveh, the Assyrians, have done to every other nation's capital. They're just going to lay waste to it. Where is the den of lions and the feeding place of the young lions? Where are the lion? Lion is in lion's clubs proud with nothing to disturb them. The lion tore enough for his cubs and killed enough for his lioness and filled his lairs with prey and his dens with torn flesh. In other words, we're going to come and take everything out of your cave that you took from other, somebody else. We're going to take it from you. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts. I will burn up your, her chariots in smoke. A sword will devour your young lions. I will cut off your prey from the land, and no longer will the voice of your messengers be heard. Again, archaeological, archaeologists have, have, have uncovered um, evidence that the place was just burned. All this charred wood, all this charred stuff. Um, that's what Nahum prophesied. And so that's the destruction described, how God will do it. Now let's look at the last chapter, why they deserve to be destroyed. And this is, this is why God was going was gonna to destroy the Ninevites. Um, notice verse 1. Woe to the bloody city, completely full of lies and pillage. Her prey never departs. The noise of the whip, the noise of the rattling of the wheel, galloping horses and bounding chariots, horsemen charging, swords flashing, spears gleaming, many slain, a mass of corpses and countless dead bodies. They stumble over the dead bodies. Again, I think just describing how ruthless the, 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 the Assyrians were. They were just a people of blood. And then notice how he likens the nation and really the city here to a prostitute. All because of the many harlotries of the harlot, the charming one, the mistress of sorceries, who sells nations by her harlotries and families by her sorceries. Behold, I'm against you, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will lift up your skirts over your face and show to the nations your nakedness and to the kingdoms your disgrace. I will throw filth on you and make you vile and set you up as a spectacle. I will come about all... I will come... And it will come about that all who see you will shrink away from you and say, Nineveh is devastated. Who will grieve for her? Where will I seek comforters for you? And, and I think what he was talking about there is that, that uh, they basically had, had acted like a harlot, a prostitute in regards to other nations and they would show off their wares and all of their opulence and their city was magnificent and, and their, their palaces and their temples were, were, were just filled with splendor and they had mighty armies, mighty armies they had all this wealth, uh, they had this imposing art and architecture and, and all these things attracted um, these, these nations maybe to, to, um, to, to, to somehow um, develop relationships with them. And it was like an adulterous luring a victim to their destruction. 
And they would basically trick him into being an ally, and then they would come and destroy him. And so he says, I'm just going to make a spectacle out of you, and I'm going to embarrass you. And no one is going to feel bad about it. Nobody's going to grieve for you. Nobody's going to mourn. Everybody's going to be happy that you're getting what you deserve. He, again, references the capital of Egypt, Noamin, here in verse 8. Are you better than Noamin, which was... Uh, Noah, mom, excuse me, which was situated by the waters of the Nile with, with water surrounding her, whose rampart was a sea, whose wall consisted of the sea. In other words, are you kidding me? Nobody thought that that city was, was going to be destroyed, and yet you took it out. Even though it had all this uh, protection from the water, and you, you're in the same way. You're right on the Tigris River. You feel like you're impenetrable. But hey, that city, you destroyed that city. Ethiopia was her might, Egypt too, without limits. Put and Lubin were among her helpers, yet she became an exile. She went into captivity. Also her small children were dashed to pieces at the head of every street. They cast lots for her honorable men. All her great men were bound with fetters. You too will become drunk. You will be hidden. You too will search for a refuge from the enemy. All your fortifications are fig trees with ripe fruit. When shaken, they fall into the eater's mouth. Behold, your people are women in your midst. <laughs> Bunch of bunch of girls is what he's saying. <laughs> you're, you're soldiers, man. You're a bunch of girls. Um, um, no offense, ladies, but it's like when you're out on the golf course, you know, and you, you don't hit it hard enough, and the guy said, that get caught in your skirt, right? You know, it's that kind of thing. You're, they're, they're, he's making, God's making fun of them. And, and, uh, and he's basically saying, uh, you're ripe for judgment. The gates of your land are open wide to your enemies. Here, here you are, this impenetrable city, right? Locked down, 20 years, you can withstand a siege. Man, I'm just like going to open your gates wide open. Let people come. Fire consumes your gate bars. Draw for yourself water for the siege. Strengthen your fortifications. Go into the clay and tread the mortar. Take hold of the brick mold. Their fire will consume you. The sword will cut you down. It will consume you as the locust does. Multiply yourself like the creeping locust. Multiply yourself like the swarming locust. You have increased your traitors more than the stars of heaven. The creeping locust strips and flies away. Your guardsmen are like the swarming locust. Your marshals are like cords of grasshoppers setting in the stone walls on a cold day. The sun rises and they flee, and the place where they are is not known. Again, just describing you know, this, this nation that is so deserving of God's wrath. Your shepherds, verse 18, are sleeping, O king of Assyria. Your nobles are lying down. Your people are scattered in the mountains, and there is no one to regather them. There is no relief for your breakdown. Your wound is incurable. Don't miss that. Your wound is incurable. In other words, there's no hope. You're a goner. You have a terminal problem. All who hear about you will clap their hands over you, for on whom has not your evil passed continually? Everybody knows you have been the big bully nation, right? That's pushed and shoved your way around, you know, the Mediterranean, and, and, and everybody hates your guts <laughs> for what you've done. And, uh, and, and there's nothing you can do about it. And I think what's unique here about Nahum, first of all, is there's no word of, of condemnation against Judah, no call for Judah to repent, even though they were evil and God was going to use not the Assyrians, but the Babylonians, right? 
in just a, a few more years to come and punish the nation of Judah, this was not the time or the place. That, that's another prophecy, right? Right now, Nahum was just focused in on not Judah's sins, but Nineveh's sins, and he was sticking up for his people, the nation of Judah. So I think that's unique that he's, he's, he's not calling Judah to repentance like some of the other prophets did. Like, for example, Isaiah, uh, calling them to repentance. Um, I think what's even more unique about Nahum here is that there is no offer of repentance to Nineveh. He's not calling Judah to repentance, but neither is he offering repentance to Nineveh. He says their wound is incurable. He announces only judgment. He, he never gives them an opportunity to escape his coming wrath. Why? Because they had already been given that chance, right, to repent through the ministry of Jonah, but they had returned to their sinful ways, and now they had only his wrath to look forward to. That's a scary place to be, isn't it? When you've been given an opportunity to, to change, God has confronted you about your sin, you've been convicted about it, and you're like, man, I know I need to change, and maybe you even make some changes in your life, but then a week later, a month later, a year later, you're back to the same old stuff. You could be wearing out the patience of God, right? That he's been merciful, he's been gracious to you up until this point, but at some point he's just going to say, you know what? I got nothing left but to punish you, to judge you. I was talking to someone recently and they, praise the Lord, had come and said, hey, I really want to change. They said, I need some help. They came by and said, hey, I, I, I need help. I want to change. I know I'm not living the way I know I should be living. I said, that's awesome, man. How can I help? And, and uh, well, I just need to get back right with the Lord. And, 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 and they, be, they proceeded to tell me about, uh, they were about to make a, another sinful choice. They'd already been making a bunch of sinful choices at that point. They realized it was wrong, they needed to change. But there was another sinful choice looming out in the next week or so. And, and I was like, well, I'll tell you what, this is the perfect test if you really want to change. Because what you do with this next decision, right, is going to determine whether you're truly repentant or not. Or you're just maybe feeling guilty, feeling sorry, right? But if you really are repentant, then you will make the right decision. You will not sin. You'll not continue to sin. You'll, 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 you'll um, refuse to do what you're being tempted to do, and you'll, right, you'll honor God. You'll do the right thing. You'll obey. The bad news is, for us, is that we are all by nature objects of God's what? Wrath. That's what it says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3. Why? Because we are sinners and we have rebelled against God. And therefore, we are all by nature objects of God's wrath. We deserve to be punished by God. And the Bible says that the wages of our sin is death, being eternally separated from God in hell. That's what we deserve. The good news is, unlike the nation of Nineveh, God does extend to us the opportunity to repent, and he's provided a way of escape. He's, he's provided us a way to escape his wrath. Nineveh had no escape. But we do have an escape, and, and God's escape is simply 
we flee from our sin and flee to Christ in faith in order to escape the wrath of God. And we said this a a hundred times or more, right? That when Jesus hung on the cross, God poured out all of his wrath towards, uh, for the sin or against the sin of all those who would repent and believe. He poured his wrath out on his son, all of his holy hatred for sin on his beloved son. And so when we admit that we've sinned against God and deserve to be punished for our sin, that, that we were the ones who deserved to be on that cross, taking the penalty for our sin, the punishment for sin, and we believe that God punished his son in our place, right, on the cross, we will be saved from God's wrath because it no longer abides on us, but it abides on Christ. John 3.36 He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. You want to get out from under the wrath of God? Believe in Christ. Obey Christ. Romans 5, 9, much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. You ever ask yourself, what are you saved from? Right? Saved. Saved from what? I think R.C. Sproul wrote a book. With that title, save from what? We always say, hey, I'm saved. Well, from what? You're saved from God's wrath against your sin. First Thessalonians 1, I love this description of the Thessal- Thessalonians. They say, it says this, you turn to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for a son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come. And so the cross provided us the scariest and most sobering preview of the coming wrath of God. Nineveh, I mean, yeah, what happened in Nineveh was bad. But what happened at the cross was worse. That was a picture of the wrath of God. Years ago, I came across a a story that I think describes Uh, how we are delivered, how we're rescued, how we're saved from the wrath of God. Um, It's a great picture. The story goes like this. A prairie fire was whipped along by the wind so fast that it overtook everything in its path. One family, seeing the impossibility of outrunning the blaze, began a backfire and then covered themselves with earth as they lay in the midst of the already burned out circle. The roaring fire met the backfire and burned only up to the edge of the burned over area and then went right around it, continuing its hungry race. The family was saved. They knew the only safe place was where the fire had already burned. And this is the application. The fire of God's wrath has touched down at one particular point in history. And when it did, it utterly consumed a man as he hung on a cross. It did not burn a large area, but it finalized God's work of judgment. The fire of God's wrath will come again in history, and this time it will consume the whole earth. Will there be any place to hide? Only on the hill on which the cross stood, there where the fire has already burned. Jesus Christ is our burned over area. He's the only safe hiding place from the wrath of God. And it just takes me back to Nahum Chapter 1, verse 7. In the midst of this 
prophecy of God's wrath coming down. You have this this place of refuge. Verse 7, the Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knows those who take refuge in him. The question is, have you, are you taking refuge in Christ? Because he's the only way that you can escape the wrath of God. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for these obscure little books that after an initial reading, a superficial reading, they really don't make a whole lot of sense necessarily, but as we dive in a little deeper, Lord, there's so much um, meaning and, and so many implications and applications for our lives. And Lord, I don't know who's here tonight. I know a lot of the people who are here tonight, but Lord, only you know where everyone is at with you. And if there is anyone here who is still um, under your wrath, that your wrath is still abiding on them um, because they've yet to, to flee from their sin and, and flee to Christ in faith. They're not finding their refuge in Christ. Lord, that you would tonight, to be gracious to them, grant them repentance, help them to see uh, that you're, how patient you're being with them and that right now you're, you're, you're showing them kindness, not severity. And that, that this, the kindness that they're experiencing and that they've experienced up to this point in their life should draw them to repentance, to get right with you and to embrace Christ as their Lord and Savior so that someday they would never have to experience your severity. Thank you, Lord, for Jesus and, and, and how he took your severe wrath on himself on the cross so that we would never, ever have to experience that. And Lord, in just our daily battle with sin, Lord, as you woo us away from our sin and towards Christ, I pray that when we repent, Lord, that it would be genuine, lasting repentance. It wouldn't be just a temporary repentance uh, that lasts for a day or a week or even a year, but it would just be a, a, a forever repentance, Lord, that you would just help us to, to overcome some of the sinful habits and, and things that we all are prone to, to give into and that, Lord, we would... Um, uh, sin less often, Lord, and that you would just be gracious to us not to, to let us return to our sin. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.